Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Power of Audio, Science and AI, supported by Stockholm Music City. I am Jasmine Moradi, your host, and in each episode, I'll take you backstage to meet with some of the top audio, science and AI personalities in the world. I will interview entrepreneurs, authors, business experts and thought leaders to learn how and why they're so passionate and determined about what they do. I will give you the knowledge and the insight your business needs to succeed with your audio branding. My guest today is the one and only audio alchemist, Steve Keller, Sonic Strategy Director for Studio Resonate at Pandora Cyrus XM, the largest ad-supported audio entertainment streaming service in the US. Prior to that, Steve was the founder and CEO of IV, an audio consultant based in Nashville. With a head for data and a heart for sonic expression, Steve has gained recognition as one of the world's leading experts in the field of sonic strategy and identity. His life mission is to harness the power of sound to shape perception and influence behavior. He has a degree in psychology and over 30 years experience in the music industry. His research topics include the relationship between sound and taste, the existence of audio archetypes and their impact on brand messaging, the relationship between voice, racial constructs and sonic races, and the impact of soundscapes and noise in healthcare environments on patient outcomes and satisfaction. Steve is the 2017 receiver of the iHeartMedia Scholarship for Leadership in Audio Innovation and is currently completing an executive MBA through the Berlin School of Creative Leadership, focusing on how brands can more effectively measure the predict and return on audio investments. In this episode, Steve and I are going to discuss the ins and outs of the psychology and quantification of audio, how to harness the power of sound to shape perception and influence behavior in the new now. With that, Steve, I welcome you and thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. And that was such a mouthful <laughs> of an introduction. It's only because I've been around for a while. So my path has meandered and it, it takes a while to fit it all in there. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Welcome. How are you feeling in times like this? And where are you right now? Uh, currently, I'm in uh, Oakland, California. That's where Pandora uh, was was started. So um, I'm here uh, right now. The sun is shining, as it usually always is in sunny California. Uh, I'm healthy. I'm working, uh, and I'm grateful for both of those things. You know, in in a world with a pandemic, um, it's affected a lot of people's health. Uh, and livelihood, uh, and I don't take it for granted that, you know, for me, those two things are still intact. I'm very, very happy to hear that everything is fine. And now I'm interested to get to know you better. So looking back in the mirror, what was it in your inner motivational drive and curiosity as a boy that brought you to where you are today, working with psychology and quantifying audio? Well, I think... You know, the, the audio piece uh, was part of, you know, my early childhood. I remember um, one of the first uh, records, because it was listening to records back in the day, uh, that my parents got was a, a Disney album, The Great Composers. Uh, and I think I wore that record out. I wanted to be Beethoven. Uh, I wanted to be able 
to hear, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, to, you know, play that kind of just passionate music. So I took piano lessons when I was a kid. I picked up a guitar when I was in junior high school. In high school, I started writing songs because it was a great way to meet girls. Um, but I never thought about it as, career, as a career. It was just a great creative and emotional outlet um, for me. Uh, and also as a, as a child and, you know, growing up, um, I was all, always fascinated by science. Um, you know, had a lot of projects in the science fairs. And I was always intrigued by, uh, you know, human behavior, why we do what we do. Uh, and so when I headed to university, um, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about a career in music. Uh, it was psychology. Studied psychology, finished there, was headed on to grad school to get my master's and PhD, uh, and decided to take a little detour. <laughs> so rather than winding up in academia, I wound up in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and worked there in the music business, um, doing a lot of music for commercials. That's where I developed my love for advertising and marketing. And it was eventually in about 2005, I brought all of these worlds together, the marketing, advertising, music and sound, psychology and research, um, and started down the path that's led me to where I am today. How do you like to work and where you are today? Um, I, I feel like it's interesting, you know, life travels in cycles. Sometimes things come back around. Um, and as I grew um, my business, IV, and then ultimately was um, hired by, by Pandora to essentially do what I was doing in the business, but um, on, a, on a much broader scale, uh, I found myself coming back to academia. Um, you know, as I started looking more at the power of sound on our uh, behavior, on our memory, on our physiology. Uh, I started meeting academics, started doing research again, getting published in academic journals. Um, and uh, that blend, as I call it, audio alchemy, uh, which is a blend of science and art, uh, has been um, part of this career path that's led me to the position of a sonic strategy director at Studio Resonate and people say, well, that's a great title, but what exactly do you do? <laughs> and so true to the idea of alchemy, what I say is that I use sound science and sound art to help our clients make sound decisions. So it's really about um, you know, developing a strategic uh, view of audio. Uh, very often in advertising, we're used to thinking of sound as a tactic. Oh, we need a piece of music into our commercial, or I've got a retail space, I guess I need something playing in the background, or I have a script, I need a voice to read it. Um, but we're not stepping back to ask the questions about, well, why would I choose that particular voice? Why would I choose that piece of music? What's the impact of that sound in this environment? Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I'm doing is educating um, our clients and hopefully the world through opportunities and conversations like this um, about the power of sound and thinking about it more as a strategy than simply a tactic. Yeah, very impressive. I think we're very similar there. And as you said, you, you educate people and you also are a speaker. And I watched your TEDx Nashville talk about harnessing the power of sound. It was very interesting. So explain for us, what is an audio logo? 
and why does it have such a profound physiology and behavioral effect on us? Well, I'll answer your the the first question, um, which is kind of a simple answer. Uh, you know, an, an audio logo. I like to say an audio logo is to your ear what a visual logo is to your eye. So, uh, you know, a visual logo is just a visual mark, if you will, that helps you very recognize a brand immediately. Um, and it's kind of just developed through classic conditioning, you know, that you, the brand is paired with the logo. You see it on commercials, you see it in print, you see it in different places, um, in stores, on the product. And uh, you begin to recognize the brand through that visual mark. So it's the same thing with an audio logo. An audio logo is usually, you know, it could be based on sound design. It could be uh, a few notes that's part of a simple melody, but it's designed to be a very short sonic representation of the brand. Um, and you use it enough, you build the recall and the recognition. Um, and the advantage of, of an audio logo is obviously um, you don't have to see it. You, you know, you can have your eyes closed and still recognize the brand. Uh, so in, in some ways, it, you have more of an opportunity. Um, and the research has shown that these kind of audio assets, like a sonic logo, outperform visual assets when it comes to attention and brand, brand salience um, significantly. Uh, and so that's uh, the... The, the bit about an audio logo. Uh, when we think about sonic identity though, um, it's more than just one asset. Uh, I think that's a kind of a myth that happens when brands, particularly now, uh, there's more discussion around having a sonic identity. And so immediately, again, they're jumping to the tactic. Oh, I need that audio logo. I need those notes. Rather than realizing that a sonic identity is part of an experience of a brand. Mm. So that audio logo is just one of multiple assets mm. that could be part of an entire sonic identity system mm. that might consist of an audio logo. It could also consist of a brand theme. It could consist of quite literally a brand voice that's, that's being used. It could consist of functional sounds that are part of a application um, or, or navigation. It could be what's happening in the environment. It could be the sound of the product itself on and on and on. Uh, and, and the reason why it's important to think about sound as a system is to get to the second part of your question, which is, is the power of sound uh, to have an impact on us. You know, I, I talk about memory. Um, we mentioned that with the audio logo. Uh, and sound, particularly music and melodies, are uh, a great mnemonic or memory device. It's why very often when we learn things, we have little melodies with them, uh, you know, ABC. here in the States when we, yeah, when we learned our ABCs, you know, it was twinkle, twinkle, little star was the melody, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, and probably our ancestors, when they were telling their histories in the past, um, had them as part of songs or chants. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this memory piece that's very effective. But music and sound also impact our physiology. Mm. Um, there are neurochemicals in our brains, as you know, that are, you know, th there's this kind of drip, drip, drip of these chemical cocktails of, of dopamine that happens when something is a really pleasurable experience and it's very addictive. And music is an extremely powerful dopamine 
trigger. It's one of the reasons why we have particular songs we like to listen to over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, oxytocin is another neurochemical, um, which uh, you know kind of makes us feel all warm inside and and trusting. And you know we found that particularly when people are singing together or moving, mm. you know, in synchronous movement in time with rhythm, that one of the outcomes is, of that is actually an increase in pro-social behavior. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, speaking of behavior beyond this physiology, um, music and sound can shape our behavior. Uh, and there's the classic um, uh, piece of research that uh, most people, you know, that have ever heard these kind of presentations are familiar with which is the research that Hargraves and North did um, in a environment where people were shopping for wine uh, and they saw a shelf, there were French wines, there were German wines, they made their selection, they checked out, and then they were stopped at a re by a researcher um, that began to ask them questions about why did they choose the wine. Um, and cutting to the chase, uh, there was background music playing. Um, and uh, they found that even though the consumers, for the most part, didn't even say they were aware of the music uh, and a very small percentage even said it made any impact on their decision. Because they found that on the days, yes, it's, it's, yes, it's implicit. So yeah. on the days they were playing French style music, 77% of the wines that were sold were French. And then on the days where they played German kind of Schlager country music, 73% um, of the wines that were sold on those days were German. So all they were doing was changing the music in the background and it was having an impact on the choice. Um, so, you know, I, I could go on and on with other yeah, examples, yeah, but, yeah. but it's this idea of, you know, memory, physiology, behavior, um, and I'll mention one more uh, that I think is important that we don't often talk about because we're, we're, we talk very much about music and emotions. We understand that, uh, but we don't talk about music and meaning. Mm. Uh, and you had mentioned in the archetype, in the uh, introduction, some of the research that I've done into to the existence of audio archetypes. Yeah. And finding that music doesn't just communicate emotions, it also communicates meaning. Mm. Uh, and so, again, this goes back to these sound choices. If you're aware of of an archetypal position of your brand. You know, many brands do this work. Are you a, a hero brand, a jester brand, a lover brand, a caregiver a brand? Maybe you're a combination of these things. Mm. Um, music also communicates these kinds of narratives. Uh, and we found um, in neural research, actually hooking people up to look at brain waves, heart rate, um, eye tracking, that um, even in a visual commercial, by only changing the soundtrack, that was the only thing we changed. We changed where they were looking on the screen, what their attention was. We changed um, the, how hard their brain was working. You know, we found that if we had music that was communicating a narrative that was congruent with what they were seeing, uh, the brain wasn't working so hard. Um, it affected arousal rate. Um, so, you know, you can change not just to the emotions, but you can change the narrative that someone has. So these are just all examples of the power of music and sound to shape our perception and behavior.
Yeah, and, and talking about shaping the perception, you also mentioned in your speech that we hear things 20 to 100 times faster than we see them. So it's probably based yes. on that, our senses, that is the one that works the quickest. And I actually say the same when I do my in-store music uh, for brands to understand that when uh, consumers enter the store, it's very important what music you play because it's already starting to you know, tell your narrative the same way as in a movie, as you explain, or in a commercial, what you play will tell the narrative. And, and that is what's so interesting. But why do you think it's so um, challenging for, for brands to understand it? Or they do understand it, but to implement it? Could it be that la music and uh, music, it's such a complex language? Well, I, I think that's, I think that's a part of it. I mean, very often when I'm working with brands, um, you know, and workshopping with them, uh, part of what we're doing is coming up with a common language, mm. you know, finding a way to communicate, uh, you know, f what, what are the sonic building blocks? You know, if, if something, oh, I don't think that's exciting enough. Well, the sonic building block for that could be tempo. Mm. Um, it could be rhythm. Uh, it could also be uh, pitch. Mm -hmm. And so when you just have a rudimentary understanding, you don't have to know music theory. You can just, now you're saying, is it too slow? What would happen if we just speed it up a little bit? Mm -hmm. It may be that you don't have to change the entire track. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is play with the, the tempo. So I think language is one thing, but I really think the the real issue is that there's you know what I call a value perception gap um, that exists. Where on the one hand, nobody argues that music's powerful. Hmm. I mean, you know, our whole lives have been soundtracked, we so we it. can yeah. think about about that. But when it comes to saying, well, how can I measure those outcomes? I think a lot of times, you know, brands first of all, they're not aware that. Uh, testing methodologies have exploded, particularly in the audio world. And there are ways that we can contest. But many brands don't really understand um, how to predict and optimize um, the value, not only that they're creating by doing something that's emotionally engaging, but the value they can capture um, through shaping perception and shaping consumer behavior. And so when you have this value perception gap, on the one hand, it's like, okay, I know that's important, but I don't really know how to get there. Um, and I've got these visual assets and I'm worried about the campaign and I just need to get the message out that we need to buy things. Um, and you get all wrapped up in those decisions and then you get to the end of the process and it's, oh yeah, I need my music. Okay, let me just find something and throw it on because I only have a week before this spot is going to going to air. But wait, isn't that very interesting? Because when I did my story research, if you have a brand that spends a lot of money on the visual, right? As you said, he's so stressed to packaging this. And then in the end, he's just throws on the music, which we did testing in the stores. We have a luxury right. brand that sells exclusive, you know, expensive beds. And, and everything is in perfection, but in the stores, they play radio music and suddenly the entire perception, no matter how much money, how much in detail you worked on it, 
according to me, it totally de destroyed. Yes. <laughs> so it's the same here. Like they, they stress so much about the other part that all that work goes to the trash when yeah. they're using the wrong messaging through the audio. And so that's why, you know, what you just did was an example of how you would try and close this value perception gap. Mm. Because very often it's just, you know, becoming aware. Mm. And when you help brands understand, you know, brands have KPIs for everything. Mm. Um, and very often I would ask a brand in, in initial meetings, well, what are your KPIs for audio? And you'd, you'd see this look of, confusion on their face where they're trying to a KPI for audio. What's, what's that? I said, well, I'm sure you have KPI for your advertising. You have KPI where you're looking at, you know, brand linkage and you're looking at how do you get that through your distinctive assets, like your visual logo. Well, yeah, you don't have a KPI for audio. Um, and so very often I encourage brands to, to develop KPIs around what I call, um, I, I've kind of defined them as the the three pillars of sound business. Mm. Um, and one of those is the the pillar of engagement. And that's usually how we're using music all the time anyway. You know, it's how can we, um, you know, capture someone's attention? How can we create an emotion? Mm. Um, so we talk about engagement, but I flip engagement a little bit because I think engagement is actually a meaningless metric unless you have a behavioral outcome associated with it. Mm -hmm. So when I say engagement, I'm talking about behavior. So what's your KPI for sound in terms of the behavior you're trying to encourage? How are you using sound to shape that behavior? So you have a KPI there. The other KPI is in the pillar of identity, which is the pillar of perception. Mm -hmm. And so, Everybody's using brand music and sound for engagement, but are you thinking about how it's communicating your brand identity? So what do you want to communicate there? What's the KPI? You know, is it, is it recall of an audio logo? Is it something around the brand theme? Is it something to do with recognition or feelings around a voice? How are you aligning your brand intent with consumer perception? Mm -hmm. And then the third pillar is um, the pillar of, of management, which really speaks to equity. Mm. So what that's looking at is how are you using sound to produce equity in two ways. First, brand equity. Mm. Um, and we know from all the marketing research, um, the, the most famous being uh, the study by uh, Les Bonnet and Peter Field that looked at two different kinds of messaging short-term messaging, which is really just about sales activation, and very often in audio-only advertising, that's usually what it is. There's a voiceover that's saying, we're doing a promotion this week. Buy one, get one free. Come now. It's the lowest price ever. It's always out there, and this is what you need. It's almost like screaming at you. Yeah. Um, and what Peter and Les found was that this is a, it's, it's effective, but in the short term, it produces a little sales spike, but then it drops off and yeah. you've got to get back and, and it's just this kind of up and down. But when they looked at the econometric data of brands that did more long-term brand building, which is really a less about this rational appeal and more about developing an emotional connection over time. Yeah. They found that brands that engaged in this kind of messaging and advertising produced twice the revenue 
um, than brands that were solely focused on short-term advertising. So you have to have a have a ratio and lesson. Peter, you know, we're suggesting, you know, 60, 40, 60% um, long-term brand building, 40% short-term sales um, activation. But the the point of all of this is if you think about engagement and perception in terms of building your brand equity through salience, recognition, um, sound can do that in a short, in a long-term um, advertising, but even in the short term, if you've got sound that helps the brand be recognized, you're still doing some brand building there. And then the other piece of equity that, that not a lot of brands think about is that very often, you know, when you're producing particularly a sonic identity, um, this is intellectual property. Mm. There's a copyright involved. Yeah. You can trademark your audio logo. Uh, you can copyright your brand theme. Uh, and it works differently uh, in different um, parts of, of the world. But brands very often don't realize that they can actually generate royalty revenue from their audio properties. Mm. If they have a brand theme that's used in their commercial every time it plays, oh, they can that's, make oh. that's earning money. Interesting. And they, they just haven't thought about how to register mm. themselves as a publisher, how to, you know, collect those royalties. They're not spending any more for it, but that can offset costs. So that's, you know, building equity in your property. So this idea of KPIs, <clears throat> if you have a KPI for behavior, a KPI for perception, a KPI for equ equity, now you're beginning to think, oh, I've got a KPI I need to be measuring these outcomes. Mm. And once brands start doing that, this, the value perception gap closes very quickly. And any choice of music now is, okay, I'm gonna license this from a music library. How much does that cost? Is it building brand equity at all? What's it doing to my perception, behavior? Okay, now I have a way of starting to think about, is there a return on an investment? Mm. I'm gonna license a, a huge track from an artist well, okay, that's going to cost a lot of money. Is that going to engage consumers? Perhaps. Will it build brand identity? Well, it might actually increase the equity of the artist and not the equity of the brand. And maybe in some situations, that's money that's not well, well spent. So this KPI and this model kind of closes this value perception gap and gets brands thinking about music and sound differently and changes their behavior towards it. And, and this, is this a role in the company that similar way that social media manager has become a role in a company that companies more should, you know, start looking at hiring an audio scientist and audio identity experts, or is that on the same table as the marketing manager? I think I I think within most corporate structures, you know, I mean, in in a in a larger brand, you know, where you have, you know, let's say for instance a brand like Coca Cola, which in some ways is less a, a soda company and more of a marketing company yes. now, mm -hmm. you know, you you could have, you know, a, a specialist in sound that's looking at not only from a marketing perspective, you know, in terms of the identity piece, but maybe in terms of experiential, maybe in terms of product development, maybe in terms of some innovative technologies, you know, in, in that world, yes, you could have somebody that might be 
on the marketing arm, might be in the R&D arm, you know, could be a, a, a sonic scientist or a sonic psychologist, if you will. But I think even in smaller brands, um, this is an area that should just fall underneath whoever is in charge of marketing and is in charge of the brand perception and the brand connection to consumers. Because you've already got standards in place for your visual guidelines, no doubt. Most brands have, if not a brand book, at least a style guide. So they know, here's our brand colors, and it's these specific colors. And here's our brand logo. And here's how you're going to see it and use yeah. it. You don't ever use it this way, but use it this way. Here's our font that we use. Mm -hmm. And so you're making sure that whenever a communication goes out visually, it's always consistent. And so really all you need to do it on a baseline is just apply that exact same thing to sound. So now you're not just thinking about visually how you're being consistent. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about sonically how you're being consistent. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned this in one of your earlier, um, descriptions of people walking into a store and hearing the background music. And if it's something that's just playing on the radio, um, you know, chances are it's not fitting yeah. any other brand communication. And I often talk about on hold music mm -hmm. because I know brands that have actually done the work to be really consistent. They've developed assets, but they haven't thought about the fact that they have an entire sonic ecosystem. They've never bothered to map it. And so, you know, on hold becomes this area that they don't think about and a customer calls in and all of a sudden, all this work that the brand has done to create an experience goes yeah. out the window. You yeah. know, you are now in a whole other universe that just doesn't make sense and can have a huge impact on your perception um, of of the brand. Uh, and so again, it's, it's, it's about attention and having whoever is the brand steward um, just thinking about audio as much as they're thinking about the visual aspects. Yeah, and um, it really is that simple. As, uh, see themselves as the customer. So put yourself sure. in your all different kind of audio touch bases, sit yes. in the phone, go into the store and, and figure out what story are we telling with that kind of sound, yes. right? And yeah. And, I, and, and, and that's what I also try to say to brands is, for example, uh, I, I always use Volvo as an amazing uh, example. A few years ago, they started um, putting amazing, you know, costly uh, music into their commercials. And I would say that the, uh, car companies and car commercials is actually one of the best ones. I don't like really driving, but when you, when you see it, when with the music, you're just feeling, you know, wow, the drive. However, what I believe that brands, it's almost what like you're talking about that they're not good at is bringing the same feeling and experience in all touch bases and that's like right. the same as i would say volvo is not doing properly hey volvo but it's it's like they're not bringing that feeling that experience to their showrooms yes. when you're actually because we all do commercials because we want people when they are in the store that's when they do the purchase decision, more or less. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they said that the two thirds of um, decisions are made in stores, but of course some people already saw it maybe on TV. 
So why don't they prolong that and really bring the entire experience until they're in the store, they're sitting in the car themselves and remembering the, you know, the commercial and pang, yes, I want to buy that one and not the other one because we buy, we mostly buy because of that feeling, right? Right. And, you know, you're talking about these, these consumer touch points and, and many brands, you know, they map out their consumer journey. Mm. You know, where does the, does the consumer first hear about the brand? What's next in that, you know, what's the funnel that ultimately gets them down to, to purchase. And, uh, you know, as, as I am often fond of saying to, um, to brands and advertisers and agencies, anybody who's working with sound, um, you know, this, this isn't rocket science. It's science, but it's not rocket science. And they're already practicing some of these behaviors. All they need to do is reframe sound in that context. Mm-hmm. So you think about that consumer journey, where are all the audio touch points along the way? And how can you create a unified experience, whether it's in your commercials, whether it's in uh, the app that somebody uses, uh, whether it's in store, whether it's something with the product. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly important you know, during this pandemic, particularly for retail brands, where you, know, you no longer have the opportunity to maybe visit the, the stores. Yeah. Uh, and so how are you creating a similar experience in a virtual mm. environment. Um, and, you know, I think these are challenges, but, you know, the challenges to me are the exciting pieces. That's where the creativity is. Yeah. You know, uh, you know I'm, I'm often uh, fond of, of talking about creativity in the context of chaos. Um, and by chaos, I don't mean, you know, a messy desk, which is what mine is right now, if you could look at it. But I mean chaos in the, in the, the true sense of, um, you know, what happens when something that's always worked one way no longer works that way. Yeah. You know, you go to open a door and it's opened a hundred times before, but now it's not opening. Well, you've got to get to the other side. Well, this is where creativity comes in. You know, it's, it's about finding dots, connecting them, disconnecting them, connecting them, you know, again. Uh, And so a lot of these problems, it's just looking at things through um, a sonic lens, you know, and what are the sonic dots that are here? How can I connect them? Um, You know, how can I map them out? And, and, And it's a very, it's a simple process. It takes time and energy, uh, and you can test things along the way uh, to help make sure, you know, you're making more objective decisions than just responding, you know, with personal tastes and and preferences. Um, But uh, it's it's a journey that most marketers are very familiar with. Mm. They've just never stopped to ask the question, oh, what does my brand sound like? Oh. Yeah. How could I capture attention with sound? Oh, what are my competitors doing with sound? Is there a unique space I can occupy? Yeah. You know, and, and so it's all these questions that you're always thinking about as a marketer, just reframing them to think about them in the context of sound. But then what would you say, from your lens, why has it taken such a long time then for the industry to appreciate the link between sound, emotion, and brand identity? I mean, sound has always been there. Uh, It's nothing new, (laughs) but how come 
it's just been neglected. It's always been visual, 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 where we, we speak, you know, when we walk into a store, we hear things we don't want to hear. And then, you know, music and all of these. Tell us. Well, I think one of the things is, <laughs> um, this is kind of funny, this will sound funny when I say it. Uh, when it comes to music and sound, everybody's an expert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, you know, very often, you know, marketers will talk about, you know, testing this methodology, testing that, um, you know, they'll, they'll spend a lot of time in, in developing, uh, you know, a visual logo. Most of them don't know how to draw. They may not even necessarily trust their own sense of, of what's good or bad from a visual perspective. But when it comes to sound, we all know what we like. We all know what we don't like. And that's a problem because we're so used to making decisions about music and sound from our gut, even though in reality, that's not what's happening. You know, you know, as well as I know that there are, you know, ways in which things are nudging us in, in, and to, to, you know, listen to things, to like things, to get those chemicals going. Uh, and so there's this, this one problem where it's very easy to just react to personal preference. Yeah. There's the other problem of measurement, which again was this value perception gap. Hey, we know it's important, but how the hell would I even measure that? So, you know, I just need some music. I don't need to think about how much of my budget I'm going to devote to all of these audio touch points out there because I've never even bothered to think about them. And, and most of us don't think about our lives in a congruent way either. I find that when I'm doing this work with brands, very often individuals on a very personal level will comment how they're hearing the world differently as a whole. Mm. Not just hearing their brands differently, but hearing the world differently. Because, you know, I, I, sonic branding, sonic identity, sonic strategy, it doesn't start with your ears. It starts with what's between them. Yeah, yeah. And very often, you know, when brands start talking about sound, again, they jump to the tactic. Yeah. It's how do I have the asset? And it's not, it, it very often doesn't start with them just kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, let me just listen for a moment. What am I hearing? Yeah. But maybe oh. that's the thing. We never take the time to stop and listen because there's so much you know, like a lot of audio around us, we don't really think about it. And as you say, it's very subjective. And I would say like in stores, I tell brands this, okay, so you control everything in the store, the color, the pricing, you know, how things should, you know, stand in a store, but how come you let your staff choose the music? Or if a customer would come in and say, oh, I don't like the music. I know some staff would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I put it down or I will change. But what if I go into a brand and I say, I think uh, this, I don't like this color or I think this price is too expensive. They would just say, excuse me, but leave the store. <laughs> so I, don't, I think it's not, yeah, it, it, it's super interesting, but I'm interested to know the, the measurement, the testing side of it right now, because mm -hmm. with all the explosion that is going on right, with audio, the important is, is testing them. So can you tell brands 
what should I think about best practices of working with audio in the new now? But with, with testing, I wanted to ask was the KPI. How can mm -hmm. we measure it with sales? Because think about when you watch a commercial, how do you know that music that you invest? Because especially in commercial can be very expensive not in stores, how do you know to connect that with your sales? Well, when I did in-store music research, we were able to do that, but sure. it's still very challenging. And, and I've spoken to other people in, in, in my podcast and they said the person, the people that can lock the audio and sales link, mm -hmm. that is how we really gonna get where we wanna get with audio, really get the value. Yes, well, I mean, obviously, one of the places where you can tie it in is in your, your messaging if there's an audio piece of that. If you have a script and somebody reads it, that's sound, mm. yeah. you know? And, and so very often, again, it's not necessarily about any one asset, it's about optimization. And so you can pretest, uh, you know, let's say a, a spot that you're gonna run on the radio you can do a pretest uh, because there are companies out there that now are specializing in this mm. where you could take, okay, here's two different scripts. Here's two different voiceovers. Here's two different pieces of music. What's the combination of script voice music that produces better recall mm. that hits the attributes that I want to represent with my brand. Mm. We can test for, purchase intent mm. um, and you know at Pandora we can see the impact of some of these changes um, on the way people are responding to ads that we are delivering mm. and select an ad that performs better mm. you know does that result in a direct sale to your point mm. sometimes it's difficult you know, to, to pinpoint one specific thing. Mm. But I think this is what's important that marketers often forget is that we're talking about an experience as a whole. And one thing that we do know from the experience is that the more congruent all the sensory elements are, the more they're aligned together, mm. you know, it improves the receptivity to the message, it improves the recall, it improves the familiarity, it improves the likability. And these are all things that have a direct impact on a consumer making a choice for a particular brand. Mm. And so again, just by kind of tuning in uh, this, this idea of um, you know, making sure that you have a congruent representation, that you're not always changing your brand voice with every campaign, mm. with every piece of, of information, mm. then you're moving the needle closer to having an impact. Mm. And we can certainly see when we get it wrong. Yeah. You know, there, there are times where you can, you know, I mean, there are famous examples of brands that have spent a lot of money on a particular brand voice or a particular piece of music only to find that the associations at the end of the day weren't there, the recall wasn't there, all of the elements that go into driving purchasing are there. You know, so, you know, I say to brands, you know, the parameters you want to look at are congruency, how well does it fit the brand, you can test for that. 
um, flexibility. Uh, you know, are you building a sonic identity where it's flexible enough that you can remember things like a melody, but you can change it up if there's a particular in, uh, emotion that you're wanting to hit, or maybe culturally relevant, you know, changing some of the sounds to fit um, a cultural backdrop uh, or, or perspective. Um, so you, you want the congruence, you want the um, recall, you want, uh, sorry, you want the uh, flexibility, you want the recall, you know, how well are people remembering it? You can measure that. You can measure that over time. You can benchmark that against other um, sonic assets that are already in market. Uh, you can take a look and see if there are things that you're doing that improve that, that recall uh, and, and get that there. Uh, is it distinct? Um, you know, do, do people recognize it in a crowd of everything else? Does it stand out? Does it own a particular sonic space? That's an outcome uh, that you can, can measure. Um, and so, you know, you look at these elements and that all of those uh, are helping you hit the sweet spot where that return on investment is. And sometimes it's a direct sale. Sometimes it's a, it's, it's a behavior. Sometimes it's a perception. Um, but again, you're putting thought into these things. You're not choosing a piece of music simply because something needs to be there and let me find something that I like. Yeah, and what would you say that would be the consequences then for brands that don't follow this uh, audio wave and don't do these measurements? Well, I think in those instances, it's hit or miss. You know, there's there's that famous saying that um, a clock, a, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Uh, you know, because if it's stopped at 12 straight up, it's right at noon and it's right at midnight, but every other time it's off. So, you know, I, I think that while there is science to making the choices, sometimes we make choices implicitly that are right on. You know, I could talk about, you know, here's a brand that's confident and exciting. And if we start talking about music, we very often will start move, moving in certain directions. Yeah. I can tell you scientifically why you would go there. We perceive it as, as instinct. Um, and so brands that understand their brand really well, um, very often can select pieces of music that, that work. Um, you know, they could even come up with five notes and drill that into consumers' heads yeah. and it becomes an audio logo. Um, but that's much different than becoming much more intentional with doing the kind of research behind the choices that you're, you're making. Uh, and so if you're not thinking about it, the chances are you may use a voice that's off-putting. You may not have consistency. You may have a piece of music that could be all wrong for the brand. You may be spending a lot of money on a piece of music because you think, oh, it's a popular song. Mm -hmm. But it could be a song that not only doesn't fit your brand, maybe it makes a consumer think of another brand. Too many I mean, people I've, are using it. Yeah, yeah I've, seen, I've seen some neuro research, particularly around certain sounds yeah. where there are some brands that have kind of owned that soundscape. And so there's another brand that's kind of like, well, let me use that. Uh, and what ends up happening yeah. is that in those moments, you're actually advertising for the competition. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because you can't own that. 
Yeah. So th these are all problems that can occur. Amazing. So now let's go into uh, an example and a subject that I really much love that is also very much about memory and it's about food and sound. And I have for a long time followed uh, uh, the experiments of your friend and research colleague, uh, Charles Spence who is an experimental right. psychologist at the University of Oxford. And I'm very surprised because now I'm honored to sit with his other half. <laughs> yeah. well, uh, I, I don't think you could call me Charles's other half. Uh, he, <laughs> Charles eclipses me. I am just happy to be a small little satellite in the orbit of Charles Spence. True, um, but at the same time, I've, I've read your articles uh, and, and knowing that you were at least a part of them because you two have done a lot of articles. Yeah. Yes, we have. We've done quite a bit of research together. So please, uh, how did you guys meet and educate us about the finding, your findings and how sound affects perception of our taste? So uh, I'm going to run you through this uh, fairly quickly, but it'll give you some good insights into not only some of these concepts, but how to practically apply them. And there's some of the things that we've talked about already. Okay. Uh, and this is a case study um, that we did for um, one of our brands, um, Propel. And Propel wanted to do something interesting um, at a uh, experiential activation. They were doing um, a fitness day um, in Los Angeles. And so they wanted to bring sound into the picture in a very unique way with their product. So I'll probably start this journey by talking a little bit about the sound science. Um, you know, you're, you're actually looking at three people who have been uh, uh, profoundly influential uh, in my life in this area. One is Charles, who's on the top <laughs> with, with the Apple, um, who is the uh, guru of cross-modalism. And cross-modal science is basically uh, the idea that all of our senses work together. You know, we talked about how, um, you know, we hear things, our, reflex, uh, our reflexes respond to sound much faster than to sight. Uh, that means sound can kind of get into our brain and set the stage for our other senses. And that's what cross-modalism is all about. Uh, some people are familiar with the term synesthesia, where there are actually individuals who have uh, had their senses cross-wired. So if they hear a sound, they don't just hear it, they literally might smell it. Mm. Or there may be a color that they see associated with it. Um, and what Charles's research has done is has shown us that this is kind of a natural phenomenon that occurs in some ways for, for all of us. And I'm gonna give you an example of that in just a second, but before I move on, uh, just point out a couple of other folks here. Uh, Janice Wang, who's now um, a professor, she went through Charles's PhD program uh, at the Crossmodal Research Laboratory in Oxford. She's now teaching in the Department of Food Science at Aarhus University in Denmark. Um, I just did a conference that Janice put on yesterday on rethinking eating. Um, in a virtual world and talking about immersive experiences. And then the other handsome gentleman uh, is uh, Yosef Youssef, who's the uh, owner chef of Kitchen Theory, uh, which is a multi-sensory uh, kitchen 
laboratory, if you will. And I've worked uh, with Joseph a lot on coming up with brand experiences and actually designing sonic experiences that are part of his multi-sensory chef's table where you can have a multi-course meal uh, from a sensory perspective. And so these are all partners uh, uh, and collaborators in this world of gastrophysics, which is basically kind of this combination of gastronomy, which is the art of the table, with psychophysics, which is the psychological study of how sound, uh, of how our um, senses influence our perception of the world around us. So let's talk about uh, just this, this cross-modalism. I'm gonna give you a quick example here to show you how this works. You're looking at two um, designs. Uh, one on the top with uh, these sharp edges, one on the bottom with rounded edges. And if I were to say to you, one of these designs is a booba, and one of these designs is a kiki, which is which? Uh, you know, the general population will make this association. Uh, and we have fun discussions around, well, why is that? Did you study booba kiki design? Well, no. <laughs> well, how did you know? Well, well, look at it. I mean, you know, the, the edges are round, booba, it, it, it sounds round. I mean, and the, even the shape of those letters is kind of round and kiki. It's very sharp and it sits differently in my mouth. And so this is a way that, you know, basically our brain is, you know, trying to make uh, a congruent experience for us. And we tend to prefer experiences that are congruent. Now we can change these things up. I can, you know, give you a piece of, of uh, lime jello and you pop it in your mouth. And instead of tasting lime or citrus, you taste chicken or liver. Uh, and that's going to grab your attention. You may not actually enjoy it, but I've got your attention for a moment. So brands can play with these sensory hacks to get attention, but ultimately you want them to be congruent experiences. And when we know how this works, we can start hacking senses. So I could say, would you rather have a chocolate that's booba or a chocolate that's kiki? <laughs> well, now you're starting to think about how that chocolate tastes. Yeah. And <clears throat> excuse me, we've done ex uh, experiments where we can actually change the taste of the chocolate, the same chocolate by changing the soundscape. And so that's what we wanted to do with Propel. So when we looked at Propel, we looked at two different flavor profiles. So one of the things that you taste in Propel is fruit, which kind of translates more as a flavor of sweetness. Another thing that you can taste are electrolytes. The electrolytes are there because it's a, a, a drink for uh, fitness buffs, uh, and it replaces the, the sodium, the salt uh, that you're losing as you're working out. So there's this idea of the sodium. So that's we want, what we wanted to look at sweet and salty. So how could we find the sonic seasonings that, that match these? Well, we know already, you're, you're seeing here on your screen, uh, what some of the sonic seasonings are for bitterness or, or sourness or sweetness. So we wanted to explore saltiness. And we set up a whole experiment where we played all kinds of different um, sounds, different pitches, different tempos, harmonies, attack, decay, and basically just we're asking people, um, you know, which of these sounds more salty to you? 
and looking for correlations. Mm -hmm. And once we did that uh, with our sample, uh, then the next piece was to create a soundscape. So we created two different soundscapes. We set up a lab in Oakland here in, in uh, California, where we then brought people in to taste Propel while listening to different soundscapes. And ultimately, we discovered a soundscape that we built for saltiness or sodium, a soundscape we built for sweetness. You should be hearing this. This is our salty soundscape. There's a little distortion. There's these odd little sounds that might almost sound like the <laughs> salt shaker, the rhythm, you know, and then our, our sweet soundscape. You'll hear here higher pitches, little tinkling sounds. If I were to ask you to describe that, you might even sound, oh, that, that sounds sweet. Sounds orange. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we could make it sound, we could make it sound more lemon by putting a little bit more dissonance in there. So we know how to, how to shape yeah. these things. Yeah. So the next thing that we did for the experience was we created what we called the Flavor DJ app. And you see there's a fader on there. Mm. Um, we put the soundscapes into this and then we played with another sensory hack, which was a hack for um, uh, a visual hack. So when people moved the fader over to the sweet side, we saturated the colors because these bright colors would communicate you know, a congruency with fruit. And when we moved over to the electrolyte side, we desaturated the colors. So now kind of moving more towards white, which you again, just might naturally associate with salt. And so we put all of this together into an app that we could load onto an iPad. And consumers at this event could drink Propel and move the fader. Now you're hearing the salty sodium soundscape. The colors are desaturated. We've made them to work together. So now we move over to the other side, kind of a seamless fade. Here's your suite. And you can see the colors changing there. So we set these up uh, at the event in, in kiosks and just here's some, some photos of people going up, putting on the headphones, they're drinking Propel, they're playing with the flavor. You see their eyes get really wide and they're like, what's this magic that you're working here? You know, it's the same bottle that I'm drinking out of, but this is, wow. it, it tastes really sweet here. It doesn't taste as sweet here. Um, if, if people were a super taster where they really um, could taste uh, salt, they tend to describe the taste as more salty. Most people um, that weren't super tasters though, just really noticed that we had shifted the amount of, of sweetness. So here's a practical example um, of, you know, using sound uh, and cross-modal science, developing an experience um, and, you know, and if a brand- way to an event, yes. like showcase yeah. it into an app, to an event. And, right. and, and I believe a lot of, you know, with stores, it's gonna be showrooms that people sure. think about this, this is really a, a gamification experience, I would yes. say to me. Like it, right. it really it makes me remember, it's fun, it's enjoyable. And, and these are the things that brands should think about and then add the sound to it. I mean, right. Yeah, if you have a retail a retail environment where there are um, you know different 
things that you're shopping for. Yeah. Let's say you're in a furniture store, maybe one side, here's the kids' furniture. Uh, yeah. Here's a side where it's just mattresses for beds. Um, here's your uh, furniture that's geared towards this style or that style. You know, you can create different zones. Yes. You can change the sonic experience. Um, you know, some places you can use sound curtains, whereas you walk through, there's some white noise that separates the area. This is what they do in the Disney theme parks. Yeah. When, yeah. when you go, notice that very often there are fountains. Yeah. And what are these fountains designed to do? Create white noise mm -hmm. so that you have more of an experience as you move through the different worlds to hear the different sounds that are just playing in the environment. So yeah, we could talk about this. For, we can talk for about this forever. So my last question for you is what are you guys cooking for the future in this area? Well, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of things that we're looking at some things that I can't really talk about yet. Um, but, you know, we're certainly fascinated in not only how we can use sound um, for the benefit of our advertisers, but also how we can use sound as sonic interventions mm. that can have a positive impact on the world around us. You know, we just talked about these sonic seasonings. You know, think about the applications, let's say in healthcare, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that, um, you know, certain tempos uh, and volume levels may encourage more caloric intake. Mm. If you need someone to eat more, mm. there could be a sonic intervention for that. You have someone who's diabetic who needs to cut the sugar out of their diet. Perhaps with a sweet soundscape, we could bring that experience back in. And it turns a out therapy, who, right? Yes, who has a chronic illness like um, chemotherapy, whose flavor sense has been just changed because of the chemicals. Could we bring some of the joy of that flavor experience back by hacking their sense of flavor through another sense like wow. I can't wait to speak more about it with you in this subject. And last, last question that I remember, what is the future of measurement? The, the way you describe it is how we measure today. Can, can AI, can any technology, what is the future of audio measurement? I'm talking five to 10 years, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I, I think again, it will be a, a combination of things, you know, You've, you've heard me say, I'm often fond of saying, and it's because I <laughs> often have these mantras that I repeat, um, but I also am fond of saying um, that sound doesn't happen in a vacuum. And that's literally true. You know, yeah. if you re remember the, the line from the movie Alien, no yeah. one can hear you scream in space. <laughs> um, so, you know, sound doesn't happen in a vacuum. And true to what we just witnessed uh, and have talked about in terms of cross-modal science, we need to think about sound in a lot of different contexts. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the future of this is perhaps tapping into wearables, you know, that's reading heart rate. Um, what are the fluctuations in that heart rate? What does that mean? Um, maybe kind of voice stress with our speaker technology that may be able to read when, um, you know, we're, we're stressed and perhaps be able to have a sonic intervention for us there. Um, facial technology, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate as, as to how well that actually does track emotions. Mm. But again, 
you know, in our smart homes, in our personal therapies. I mean, imagine, you know, the next doctor visit, you walk in and you've got a wristband on and you go in and you sit down and already the pod is adjusting to, um, you know, the signals that it's getting from your biometrics. It's preparing you for the particular therapy that you may be having, might be working to mitigate the pain. I would love if there was something like this available in the dentist office because that's my worst experience. Um, but I think that's... Uh, I think that's how it all works. Oh my God. I can't, I can't wait for the future. And what an honor to, to have you on this episode. I've learned so much and I've laughed so much. I, adorable. So I look forward to discussing further around your other subjects. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks so much. It was lovely to be here. And I always love chatting about a subject that I'm passionate about. Thank Thanks. you. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, your host, and thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast and want to follow my journey towards discovering the secrets behind the power of audio, science and AI, then make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing on my website, jasminemoradi.com, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes and Google Play. I'm working towards increasing the value of music so that artists receive the fair share of the economic value they create in our society. So make sure to spread the words to fellow brand leaders and business network through your social media. Stay tuned for my last episode for 2020, where I will be speaking to my new friend Björn Torlifsson, consumer behaviorist at the German award-winning world-leading sound branding agency AMP. He's going to present for us the findings and best practices of AMP's report Best Audio Brands 2020 Rankings. This episode is supported by Stockholm Music City, recorded in the pod booth at the co-working space The Park in Stockholm, and music by Skirk. <laughs>